your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We're coming now to the end of our study in the Gospel of Luke, which we have called Getting to Know Jesus. If you're with us for the first time this morning in this series, we've been trying precisely to do that, to, to get to know Jesus, to, to see him more clearly, to try and understand his heart and his way of thinking, and to, to observe his actions in the world so that getting to know him more closely, we might love him more deeply. And loving him more deeply, something, something in us might change. We might grow to be more like the one that we look at and love. We've come to the part of the gospel where, as I alluded to a moment ago, Jesus has been arrested. He now is going to be placed on trial. And that trial is going to reach a conclusion that results in his crucifixion, in his death. And we're going to see this in in this chapter, sort of three broad scenes. So we're actually going to start at the end of chapter 23, verse 66. And from 23, 66... Down to, or 2266, excuse me, down to 23, verse 25, we're going to see basically three courtroom scenes. Three courtroom scenes. And here's what I want to suggest as a lesson for us in those scenes. There can be no justice where there is no truth. There can be no justice where there is no truth. That's point number one. And then we're going to move from the courtroom scene, we're going to move actually to the execution itself, the the crucifixion. We'll see that beginning in verse 26 of chapter 23, and we'll go down to verse 43. We want to look at those events, and here's our second point for this morning. There can be no forgiveness where there is no humility. There can be no forgiveness where there is chapter 23. And we're going to see there... Three committals, if you will. Christ committing himself to the Father. Nicodemus committing his body to the earth. The ladies there committing themselves to Jewish ritual. I'm going to say this. There can be no genuine commitment where there is no focus. You see the scene there. We start out in verse 66 in what we might call the lower court. This is the Jewish religious court. You see there in 66, the chief priests and the elders are all gathered together. This is the, the ruling council of first century Judaism that had, had sort of jurisdiction over religious matters. And they've gathered to put Jesus on trial. Notice now, verse 67 tells us their concern. They want to know whether Jesus claims to be the Christ. Now, if you're new to Christianity and you've heard the name Jesus Christ... You, you might have thought that that's his last name, but Christ is not a last name. It's a title. It means the chosen one, the anointed one. It's a title that goes all the way back centuries into the Old Testament, into Jewish religion and worship, because centuries before, God had sent prophets promising his chosen one would come and that he would deliver Israel and that he would bring a kingdom that would not last And so they're wanting to know, or they're asking, they don't really want to know, they're asking, are you the Christ? They're putting him on trial for claiming to be somebody. But Jesus knows them. Despite all their intense questioning, our Lord knows that they are not really people who want to know the truth. That's why he says what he says in verse 67. Listen, if I tell you, you will not believe. 
And if I ask you, you will not answer. See, these are people who willfully oppose the truth. They, they will neither receive the truth nor give the truth. Beloved, these are the kind of people, the only kind of people who cannot go to heaven. For the street to heaven is named truth. The door to heaven is Mark truth. The king of heaven is the king of truth. The very one they're questioning says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But the Lord entertains them. He answers their question anyway. And he says more than even they were accusing him of. Look there in verses 68 and 69. The Lord speaks to them and he says, 69, excuse me, but from now on, the Son of Man, referring to himself, shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He says, not only am I the Christ, but I'm that figure that was prophesied to you in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where there was one in a vision of heaven, like the Son of Man, who went up to the Ancient of Days, went up to God himself, and received from God dominion and a power and authority, and received from God the worship of the nations. Not only am I the Christ, not only am I the anointed one who brings God's kingdom, but I am the Son of Man who shares God's glory. Oh, they were vexed. You, you can see them there. You can see their reaction in verse 70. These are not truth people. The truth has been plainly spoken to them. But notice what they say. Are you the son of God then? Now that's revealing, isn't it? They knew the scriptures. They knew what the scriptures taught about this figure. They didn't just simply say, are you the son of man? They didn't just say, are you the Messiah? They said, are you the son of God? They're too particular. They admit more than they mean to. Christ will indeed sit at the right hand of the Father in power. He is indeed claiming to be God the Son, the very Son of God. Verse 71, that's right. They feel like we got him. You heard it. You heard it. From his own lips. You see what he said? Blasphemy. I say blasphemy. They charge him with and they are done with the trial. And notice now. You can do anything with the truth. Even condemn a perfectly innocent man. The truth, beloved, is more than facts. The truth must be, or facts, excuse me, must be interpreted. They must be given context, and they must be accurately deciphered, and, and they must be explained in such a way that they, they sort of explain the facts of the case. The religious leaders receive a plain statement about who Jesus is. They, they know the facts from his own mouth, but they deny, beloved, the truth, and they condemn an innocent man. Let us be the kind of people who accept the truth. Not like these Pharisees. But notice what they do. Beginning in chapter 23, verse 1, they would have killed the Lord themselves, but there in that day was a law. They could not. Capital punishment was reserved for the Roman rulers who occupied Jerusalem. So now they've got to go from the lower court and they've got to take it now to the state supreme court. 
And so they take Jesus in verse 1 to Pilate, the, the governor of Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 23, verses 1 to 5, they, they're seeking now to expand the charges. Did you notice that? Verse 2. They accuse Jesus of, quote, misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. The first two points are not true. Those are trumped up charges. Jesus had taught them to give to Caesar what was Caesar's, to pay their taxes, right? And Jesus had not upset their nation. The people really had come to welcome Jesus, at least as a prophet, and had come to sort of see his miracles and to seek him out. If they were upsetting his, uh, their nation, it was only because the nation was turning from them, those false leaders, to Jesus himself. And, but, of course, he was a king. But all of this, they're trying to manipulate Pilate. These folks know how to do their dirt, right? They don't come with a well-built case, they come with manipulation. They want to seemingly put Pilate at odds with Caesar. Oh, Pilate, will you really acknowledge that he's a king and not Caesar? They're trying to put him in a pickle. In fact, another gospel writer tells us that they, they tried to maximize this awkward situation. They tried to say that Pilate wasn't really loyal to Caesar if he didn't condemn Jesus. So Pilate questions the Lord in verse 3. You see there, are you the king of the Jews? The Lord admits it plainly. You have said so. Again, another gospel writer tells us that Pilate felt like he was the superior. He, he told Jesus, won't you answer me? Don't you know that I have power over your life? And Jesus says to him plainly, you have no power over me except that what my father has given you. And he tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. John eighteen thirty six. The Lord is not only Christ, but also king of heaven and earth. Pilate finishes his interrogation and actually finds Jesus not guilty in verse 4. Verse 5 says the, uh, the priest kept insisting that, that the Lord was a threat to the government. And at this point, now notice, another court is beginning to form. It's the court of public opinion. But let us learn from Pilate. Let us not only be people who receive the truth, but let us be the kind of people who never abandon the truth. For Pilate knows this man's innocence. He knows this man is not guilty. He's not worthy of death. He said as much. But does he take his stand with the truth? Notice, he, he hears in verse 5 that, that actually Jesus is Herod, you see, from verse 6 and following. They go to Herod's court, and Herod's a funny dude. Herod's from Galilee. He's heard of Jesus. He's heard about Jesus' miracles. He's heard, no doubt, about Jesus' teaching. He's heard about the people who are beginning to follow Jesus. And, and Herod says, man, cool, I've been wanting to meet this cat. Maybe he'll do some tricks for me. Maybe he'll do some miracle. He's not exactly interested in the truth either, is he? He wants a show. He wants a demonstration. He's playing his own set of games. And they bring Jesus to Herod and they renew the accusations against Jesus. And Herod and his soldiers mock Jesus and they mistreat Jesus. They robe him after stripping him, all for their amusement. And the Lord, through it all, remains quiet. 
The old saints say, never said a mumbling word. The entire place is a circus. No one is interested in the truth or justice. Everyone has their own agenda. The only righteous person in the place was the one being mocked and tried. So much like our day. Everybody has their agenda. Everybody's clamoring. The truth is shrouded in hypocrisy and inconsistency. And oftentimes the only ones who can speak can't speak. Finally, Herod has had his fun, so he sends Jesus back to Pilate, mocking him, and the text tells us down around verse 16, the two of them became friends on that day, or verse 25, the two of them became friends on that day. And when they go back to Pilate, Pilate called together the Jewish leaders in verse 13, and, and Pilate gives them his, his kind of summary verdict in verses 14 to 16. Let's look there together. He said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, he's reasoning with them. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. Now, this is an interesting turn in verse 16. (laughs) I will therefore punish him (laughs) and release him. Isn't that an amazing conclusion? Pilate's decision effectively, essentially affirms the Lord's truthfulness. But what a stunning blindness and hardness of heart. Instead of standing on what's right and delivering justice based on the truth, Pilate refuses to embrace the truth. John's gospel records a telling exchange between Pilate and Jesus. In John 19, verses 37 and 38, Pilate says to Jesus, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Do you remember Pilate's response? Pilate said, what is truth? You see, the Bible says the truth shall make you free. But that's only true if you acknowledge the truth, if you stand with the truth. Pilate did not acknowledge the truth, and so he didn't, he didn't free Jesus, and he didn't free himself. He remained bound to the deceit that was going on. And you see the crowds there in verses 17 to 22. You see, sometimes the official courts are less powerful than the court of public opinion. The, port, the court of public opinion is really the last court in this scene. Notice verse 18. They all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. Verse 19 gives us the irony in this, right? Jesus is the one being accused of insurrection and stirring up all the people, and yet they're calling out for an insurrectionist and a murderer to be released. The one who really threatened Pilate's reign is already in jail. The one who is righteous is being traded up. Notice the end of verse 23. And their voices prevailed. Their voices prevailed over truth. Their voices prevailed over justice. Their voices prevailed over the power of Rome. Pilate gave them what they demanded. He released Barabbas and delivered Jesus over to their will. The only way to have justice in any situation 
is to care more about truth than we do ourselves. If we sacrifice the truth, then we will miscarry justice. The only persons who can make sure our systems of justice actually deliver justice are those inside and outside who will be voices for truth. A judiciary with people ruled by their own political interests will soon give the people what they want rather than what justice demands. A public ruled by their own selfish desires will soon twist the courts to serve their desires. Justice, beloved, requires nobility of character and the courage of truth and conviction based upon truth. We cannot be protesters accusing others without regard for the entire truth. We cannot be public servants rendering judgments in the fear of man. And Lord, help us if the interest of an untruthful public is mixed together with the interests of an unfaithful public servant. If they handed over the perfectly innocent Christ to death, what do you think will be done to lesser men? Courts can only give us justice if they care about truth. Let us be people who receive the truth, who stand on the truth, and who never, who never, Abandon the truth. For that's what they did to our Lord. And notice then we move from the courtrooms to the execution. And this is where we observe that there can be no forgiveness where there is no humility. Look with me beginning in verse 26 down to 43. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, And laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, 
Today you will be with me in paradise. Uh, Really what we have here are three conversations on the way to the crucifixion. The action moves from the courtroom to the execution. In verse 26, they're led away. It's like a, a long chain of mourners. The Roman soldiers seize a man named Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene is in northern Africa, in modern-day Libya. It says there in the text that Simon was just coming in from the country. He must have been a big, strong country boy because they make him carry the cross. Right? He may not have even known what was going on. He's just coming in out of the country. And perhaps he, again, was a large, strong man because they, they forced him into this service. And, and so you have Simon carrying Jesus' cross and and Jesus, having been beaten and mocked and scourged, he's following along behind Simon. Verse 26. Verse 27, a, a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. They're, they're traveling with him. The whole scene is a parade of grief. The wailing women of Israel lifting up their voices in distress. But it's not Jesus they should grieve for. When the Lord speaks in verses 28 to 30, he makes it plain that the the people need to weep for themselves. Verse 29 says they should weep for themselves because times will get so bad that they will go from actually rejoicing at the birth of children to saying that women who never had children and who never fed children, they are the blessed ones. A time will get so bad That people will cry out for the mountains to fall upon them and and call out for the hills to to crush them. And Jesus says, listen, time will get so bad and and it's only going to get worse. That's what he means in verse 30. He says, listen, if they do this when the wood is green, when it's wet and not likely to catch fire easily, what will happen when the wood is dry? If God's judgment comes upon the world when I'm here and he's being patient, and even make an atonement for the sins of the world. What will be that judgment when his wrath is hot and the whole world like dry kindling will receive that flame? Jesus says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves, all those who reject me. All those who miss the coming of your salvation. And notice, all this means that judgment is coming upon Israel and the world. And beloved, the first act of humility before God is to admit that his judgment is righteous and true and sure. To start there. Notice the next conversation, verses 32 to 38. The Lord's comments in verse 28 to 30, they really give context now for this, this next conversation at the place called the skull. They've reached Golgotha. They lift the Lord and the two criminals up on the cross. The people, the text says, stood by watching helpless in verse 34. And all around the Lord are, are soldiers and religious folks. And you can't tell them apart. The soldiers mock him and divide his garments in verses 34 and 35. The religious rulers scoff at him in verse 35. They use everything that Jesus claimed about himself as fuel to ridicule the Lord. 
Lord Jesus Christ, the only man in history, sentenced to death for being who he said he was. The Christ of God. The chosen one. The son of God. You see how them soldiers mocked him on that day? If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Pilate had written that sign and commanded it to be put over his head. This is the king of the Jews. The religious leaders didn't like that either. The gospel writers tell us, they said, no, say he said this is the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, I've written what I've written. And in writing that, he's written the truth, even though he didn't embrace it. This is the king of the Jews. And the cross now erected becomes a sign, a throne, really, of his kingship. When they write this, they put it over his head. Perhaps it was meant by the Romans to put Jewish people in their place. I'm making an example of Christ. In this entire scene, our Lord says only one thing. Verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Beloved, judgment is coming, but God is forgiving. Right in the middle of his torment is the Son of God praying for sinners, praying for the very ones who crucified him, praying even for us that we would be forgiven for the evil that we do. Notice the third conversation in verses 39 to 43. Verse 39, the Lord and the two other criminals, they now talk. The first criminal, the text says, railed at him. He's hanging on the cross, receiving his own death sentence. And with his final breath, he mocks Jesus. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. You see, some people go all the way to their judgment being stupid and unrepentant. But the second criminal has much better sense. Verses 40 and 41, he rebukes the first one. He says, do you not fear God? It's an interesting thing coming from a thief being sentenced to death, isn't it? Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And then he says this, and we indeed justly, we deserve what we're getting, right? For we're receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And showing how much sense he really has. He has this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, I don't know why some people doubt deathbed conversions. But this man, the last hours of his life, came to believe that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. He came to believe that Jesus really did have a kingdom, one that he could possibly enter. He saw his sin and he admitted his wrong and he did the only thing he could do. The only thing he needed to do. He begged Christ for forgiveness and mercy. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Aside from Jesus, he's the only humble man in the entire scene. He's humble enough to admit his sin and humble enough to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. 
The Lord speaks only one time in this entire exchange as these thieves are arguing from his left and his right across in front of him to each other. He only says one thing, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Put the scenes together. Judgment is coming. God forgives. Paradise is offered. But the only ones who receive it are the humble who admit their sins, who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who is perfectly righteous to provide righteousness to God for us, who died on the cross to make atonement for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins, not for sins that he had committed, and was raised from the grave on the third day, showing that God had accepted his sacrifice. If you, beloved, are humble enough to confess your sins, and humble enough to turn away from your sin and call upon the name of the Lord. Here's God's promise. He will forgive you of your sins. He will declare you righteous. And that day, spiritually, you will have paradise as your home. This is what we Christians call the gospel, the good news. And it's really good. Thieves hanging on a cross can lay hold to this good news. Men, in the moment of their execution for sins that they committed, would be forgiven because of this good news. Those who are going into death, in the hour of their death, may discover eternal life because of this good news. And this same news, this same offer of paradise, is offered to you. If you're here this morning, and you're not yet a Christian, I hope you have this kind of humility to admit what God knows about you and me, that we're sinners, and to admit what God has said to us as a warning. His judgment is coming, and it's real, it's true, it's accurate. And to admit what you know you need to admit that you cannot save yourself. You may as well be hanging on that cross right now yourself for all the ability that you have to save yourself. Admit that only Christ can save you. Believe in his offer of forgiveness, of love, of righteousness, and of home in heaven with him. And here's the guarantee that comes from God in his book. All of those who call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. Do not doubt it. Just do it. Call upon the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. And Christian, we have discovered this for ourselves, haven't we? God, in his amazing grace, has given us humility. We all need to get it twisted, particularly when we're talking to our friends who are not yet Christians, as if we already had that humility, and we just saw the truth and embraced it, and and follow the truth along its way? No, no, no. We were stubborn as mules. We didn't receive the truth always. We rejected the truth in our sin too, didn't we? And so we know that we have received grace from the Lord. He's been kind to us. And, and in his kindness, he's given us the ability to admit what we used to deny. We used to deny that we were sinners, didn't we? And we used to substitute that knowledge with a, a, a claim to be good people, Right? And all the while, we were going on about our own way, rejecting the truth of God. 
But God has been good to us. He's claimed us. He's changed us. He's given us eyes to see the truth about ourselves. And here's the marvelous thing we discovered, right? When we were able to see the truth about ourselves, we were better able to see the truth about Christ. We were better able to see his love poured out for us on the cross. We were better able to sort of taste the the wonder of his forgiveness. We we don't have to run from our sins anymore in in shame, though they be shameful. We can now run to God, and, and our enduring experience isn't shame. It isn't guilt. We grab hold again of that forgiveness that Christ has purchased for us on the cross, and our enduring experience is freedom. Freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from the the agony of our sin as we turn again to that Christ who loved us so much, he stretched himself wide and died for us. Oh, beloved, this this is the good of the gospel. This is the sweet part. This is the part that we go on living in, right? We need not think of our sins without thinking of forgiveness ever again. We need not ponder how wretched we have been without pondering how great and glorious Christ is to us now. And that same blood that he shed on Calvary's cross on the, on the hill called Golgotha, that same blood still pleads our cause. And that same Christ, he's right where he said he would be when he was talking to the Pharisees, at the right hand of the power of God. And guess what the Bible says he's doing? Interceding for us. Standing in for us, praying for us. (laughs) Jesus isn't done pleading our case on the cross. He's not done pleading our case until he gets us home, until he sees us all the way to glory, until we are with him face to face, until we enjoy all that he has purchased for us in the cross, and until we enjoy it perfectly. It's never been a Savior like Jesus. It's never been a love like the Lord's. Has never been an advocate like our Christ. Christian, enjoy him. Enjoy him. Delight in him. Go to him. He's pleased to receive you just as he received the thief on the cross. Surely he'll receive his children. Go to him. Say, remember me, Lord. And you will hear him say, of course I do. Of course I will. You are mine and I am yours. And all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. This is the good of the gospel. Delight in this Jesus. Go to him for his love. There can be no justice where there is no truth. There can be no forgiveness where there is no humility. There can be no commitment, no lasting commitment to Christ where there is no focus. That's what we see in those last few verses. Beginning in verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three hours now, in the middle of the day, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, 
He was a member of the council, a a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. I notice now here, Christ has been crucified upon the cross. The hour of his death has come. All of heaven, all of heaven cloaks his face. In the middle of the day for three hours, when the sun is to be its strongest, darkness covers the whole land. God gives a sign that something miraculous has happened. The curtain in the temple is torn in two. That curtain was a curtain that divided the the sort of holy of holies, the place where God was thought to dwell, where only the high priest could go, from the sort of outer courts where other people would serve and other people would worship. Now in the crucifixion, in the tearing of his flesh, Christ has torn that curtain in two so that now all can go into the very presence of God. You got the miracle of the sun hiding his face, the miracle of the, of the curtain being torn in two, and you've got Christ crying in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his lives. What a declaration of faith. What a remarkable commitment. The Son of God here modeling for us what should be our confession to come what might, that into the hands of our loving God, our Father, we commit ourselves. And so it was with Christ. Notice that in the hour of his death, he's focused on his Father. The Father who has sent them into the world, the Father who prepared a body for him, the Father who has ordained that he should die, the Father who has ordained that he should suffer for our sins. That same Father in the midst of Christ's suffering is worthy of Christ's commitment. That's where our focus is to be. No matter our circumstance, no matter what's happening in the world, no matter what befalls us, oh, let us by God's grace learn to declare, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. For those hands will never lose us. We will never slip through those fingers. And no one will ever pluck us from those hands. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That's the kind of focus, focus on the Father that drives and sustains commitment. I notice there's some others in the text as well. There's Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph, it says, he is a member of the council. He was one of those who were among the religious leaders who had Jesus on trial. But the text is very clear. Joseph did not agree with their decision. He didn't participate in their action. And on that day, rather than participate in injustice, this judge resigned. And it tells us why. He was looking for the kingdom of God. He had come to Jesus earlier, John 3 tells us. Oh, that's Nicodemus. But Joseph is like Nicodemus. He'd come to Jesus seeking wisdom, right? And he'd known that Jesus was, was a teacher of truth. So Joseph, though, goes and, and he asks Pilate for the body. And Joseph uh, buries Jesus in a never-used tomb. Now, unlike Jesus, at least in terms of this narrative, Joseph is focused on the Lord's body. 
and the Lord's burial. It's an appropriate thing to do, even a religious thing to do, even a godly thing to do. But it would be better if the text had told us he did this, still focusing on the kingdom, still looking to Christ, still looking to the Father. He doesn't know it yet, so we don't want to be too hard on Joseph, but just in three days, his grief will be lifted. In three days, the tomb will be empty. In three days, Christ will be risen again in glory and in power. And what a day that will be. That will change his focus. He will then see Christ more clearly than he did on the day of Jesus' death. You'll see him not in grave clothes. You'll see him in glory. And then you have the Jewish ladies there. It's the preparation for the Passover, so they can't handle the body yet. They can't be involved with things that will make them unclean. The, the Sabbath is coming. They must make preparations for the Sabbath. And, and in a couple of days, they're going to be the ones who go to the tomb. But, but notice what they're committed to. The last verse tells us they went back to observing the Sabbath. It's so easy to slip into religion, isn't it, and have that be our focus particularly when tragedy befalls us. And again, we don't want to be too hard on these ladies. We weren't, we weren't living in the day that Christ was crucified. We don't know what, what thunderclap that was in their soul. We don't know how broken their hearts must surely have been. But in those moments, they go back to the familiar. They go back to the ritual, the law that had been observed for centuries in Israel that they no doubt, no doubt had been raised to observe. They too are not yet focused as they ought to be on Christ. But they will be when they go to that tomb and discover it's empty. And what about us? We're to be truth people who receive the truth and stand on the truth and not abandon it. And the truth that we confess is that God is coming in judgment, but he does also forgive and paradise is offered. Will we remain focused on Christ and his gospel? And will that focus drive us in our commitment to Christ and his gospel no matter what comes? Uh, we, we could be these women who for a time slide back into Judaism and slide back into religious observance. We, we could be like Joseph who, who, who gets taken over in his mourning and, and forget the resurrection in our case. Or we could be like Christ. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. For this is what the truth leads us to when we embrace it, to commit ourselves fully to God. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, I beg you to do that. Commit yourself to Christ and his salvation, and you will never be disappointed. And if you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you're suffering, much like the people in this text, you too commit yourself to Christ. For Christ's love and the life he gives far outlast our suffering. Whether it's the mourning or death, uh, whether it's religion as an opiate that takes away the pain, uh, whether, whether it's confusion or disappointment, whatever it is, commit yourself to Christ who will faithfully keep you. In a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's table and we're going to remember the very events that are taught to us in this chapter. We're going to think about the night that Jesus was betrayed by his disciples and the, the trials that resulted and the crucifixion that was carried out. But we're going to do it not like Joseph, 
and not like the women. We're going to do it like Jesus, committing ourselves again to the Father and the word of his grace, knowing, as they did not know at that moment, that Christ was raised again from the grave, that he is ascended into heaven, and that he is coming again for us. Oh, Lord, all that we entrust to Christ is safely kept. And this supper is just a reminder. Let's pray together. Father, we hallow your name this morning. Your beautiful name. Let your name be praised in all the earth. Let heaven ring out with shouts of acclamation. Uh, Let the deep sing forth the glory of your praises. Let the world of men be invaded by your beauty. Let the nations be glad. For Christ the Lord is risen today. And we shout hallelujah. For Christ the King of truth has told us his gospel. And we receive it in faith. For Christ the sacrifice is also the resurrected and reigning Lord who is coming again. And while some cry out, let the rocks fall upon us, we cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. And while some tremble at the thought of your judgment, we come humbly and mercifully to tell them of your forgiveness. Give them grace to receive it. Give us grace to tell it. And help us, O Lord, to commit ourselves each day fully to your keeping. This we ask, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.